Welcome to Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Pam. Dr. Pam has been a psychotherapist for over half a century. He participated in the civil rights movement in the South. He is the author of three books, including historical, the historical novel, When Black Panthers Prow- uh, Prowled America. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Dr. Pam, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Excellent. Uh, first of all, let me ask you a question. Why did you write that book? Well, I felt the Panthers uh, are very relevant to what's happening today. But I started writing that book 10 years ago, 15, maybe even 15 years ago, um, because I was always concerned about racial issues in this country. Um, And uh, the the Panthers were a a pivotal point um, um, in, in the North and what happened in the North. In the South, we know the civil rights movement uh, was active there, and I was part of that. I went to Mississippi in 1964 um, as part of the um, volunteer project under Martin Luther King um, to register voters. I spent a thousand college students went down there, um, although uh, I was a little older than most, and um, and um, we tried to register voters and. Um, we did not succeed. <laughs> we did not succeed in re- and three of us were killed right at the beginning of the project by the Klan. So you were with uh, I don't remember their <laughs> I can't believe I forgot your names right now, but you were a part of that same tour where those three activists got killed. I think Yes. Yeah. Yes. Swerner, Cheney, and Goodman. Thank you. I appreciate you. I, 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 the names just kind of slipped me. Cheney and Goodman. Okay. Now let let me ask you this. Uh, I want before we get into the context of uh, your book or the concept of of the Black Panthers, etc. Uh, you got a lot of pushback. You said you were uh, pretty much canceled from publishing this book with any one of the publishers, right? Tell me a little yes. bit about that. Yes. Well, I published the book under the name Pam. That is my name. That's my last name. Um, but I uh, concealed my uh, racial identity and my gender, and gave me the impression as a female black woman writing the book uh, because of cancel culture. Cancel culture uh, today uh, has a concept called uh, cultural appropriation. You mm-hmm. may have heard of that in which uh, white authors writing about black issues um, are are criticized and rejected as trying to make money off the black community. Of course, I haven't made any money at all. I've spent money on this project. (laughs) Um, But, uh, um, and that only black people can really understand black culture. Um, So, now, cultural appropriation has gone on forever. It's part of uh, artistic license that people can write about whatever they want. Other people can react to that the way they want. Um, but um, the publishing industry has, t- has not wanted to run afoul of cultural appropriation, so they don't. They tend not to publish books by white authors about black subjects, um, and so that happened to me. A number of uh, agents, a number of uh, editors, and in one case, a publisher. Um, once they found out that I was white, 
would not publish this, would have nothing to do with this book. And they would have published it if I were black. Well, let me tell, let, let me interrupt you there because I, I I want to be straight with our audience here. First of all, I don't quite believe in a cancel culture. I don't. Then that that's why you're here. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the other thing, the other thing that I don't believe in is that uh, white people. I, I I think it is silly to say white people cannot uh, write about, let's say, particularly black issues when a lot of black issues are directly responsible to what what white people have done to black people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is quite. It, it is quite apt for um, for white people to give a perspective as to what this in this inter interracial. I, I hate to say interracial because I don't really believe in race per se. But we know America as a racial society has actually, uh, you know, it didn't become a racial society because uh, uh, of, of black folk or white folks the interaction thereof that creates this. So I think it is sort of silly to say that, um, you know, what are you going to write about if you want to write about the, the issues among races? I'm sorry. So that's the reason you're here. I want to hear your story. And um, I don't fall under that domain. Okay, very good. Well, um, anyway, um, so anyway, the book does have, uh, at the very end of it, an author's note, which does explain why um, I uh, perhaps misled some buyers um, uh, by by my name. Um, And the, the picture of a black woman, Panther, on the very front cover to give that impression, but to explain why I did this. Well, I don't think, let me, let me just tell you, Dr. Pam, I don't think you needed to do that. I like what you did, which is self-published. I have three books myself and I asked nobody for permission. I just self-published the damn book and got it out there. So I think that's what, I think you did the the right thing in the way you published. I don't believe in impersonation either, but that said, um, is this story that you're talking about here? Um, I think it's, you said it's fictional, but it pretty much goes up. It, it, it pretty much follow fact based occurrences. Is that true? Yes, exactly true. It's a historical novel. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And people of my generation, as they read the book, they keep saying, "Oh my God, I remember that! I remember that! I remember that!" Um, so the book is tells the story of the the Black Panther Party uh, through the eyes of a female, uh, a black female journalist. Neff. Covering them. Her name is Neff in the book, short yeah. for Nefertiti. And, uh, and she actually falls in love and has an affair, a long lasting affair uh, with the head of the Black Panther Party, which, is, which was Huey P. Newton uh, out of Oakland, California. And that's where the Panthers got started in 1967. Um, and as the civil rights movement wound up in the South, having achieved the voter registration legislation that it wanted. The Mississippi, the project in Mississippi helped draw a lot of attention to that issue, especially when the three people were killed. Um, and um, and then the bridge at Selma, uh, Alabama, that was the last straw, and Johnson stepped in and passed that legislation. So what we what we set out to do in the South was accomplished. And now all eyes turn northward, and the, and there, the Black Panther, uh, the Black Power movement got started with Stokely Carmichael, who had been on the project. Did you know him? I met him, but uh, just briefly as part of a crowd. Um, 
I mean, I didn't have a personal relationship with him, but, but he did speak to us, came to our project. I was stationed in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Um, also, um, uh, also relevant, I met a, a woman who had been um, also on the project, and we both went back to school after the summer, both of us in, to Buffalo, New York, and we fell in love. It's an, it was an interracial marriage. We have two children, both now lawyers. Um, but and our marriage was very much affected by the Black Power movement in the North. And uh, so the Panthers took the Black Power movement to its extreme. Um, what Huey P. Newton did was organize a Black militia <laughs> armed to the teeth um, recruited from ex-convicts and gangbangers. No college students, no intellectuals, just guys from off the, the hood. <laughs> um, and um, he had, they dressed up in black leather clothing and black beret and marched around with rifles and shotguns and confronted the police in the ghetto. And their signature issue was, as, as it still is, police brutality. Um, so they confronted them with guns. And so they were, the media, when television particularly, went, went crazy because they had to get these spectacles of the, a line of Panthers holding rifles and so forth, confronting a line of police and holding on to their batons. <laughs> and the tension that something could go wrong here. Um, but things did go wrong. Uh, um, um, the Panthers um, had a, an agenda, and that agenda was they threatened America with a civil war, with a, a guerrilla-style uprising, similar to what the Viet Cong was doing, based on what the Viet Cong was doing in Vietnam. Um, and they were going to shoot police officers, ambush police officers, raid government offices, raid corporate offices, um, <clears throat> if they didn't get black rights, the rights that black people were entitled to. And they would point out all the ways in which people in urban ghettos were. Let me, let me interrupt a second, because I, I don't want the audience to uh, come to the conclusion that, let's say, the Black Panthers was only made up of um, of criminals or folks out of jail or anything like that. They actually had social policies that they wanted to, that they, that they actually instituted throughout uh, the country to, to okay. actually uplift the black folks. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I'm just going to go there. And you're right, of course. So, um, so it, the, the audience, because violence was threatened, um, Huey P. Newton wanted people that were familiar with it. And had uh, resentment at the at the cops, whom they called referred to as pigs. Uh, that was the word for cops at the time, and then and also uh, um, corrections officers, whom they referred to as screws. Um, and um, so the violence came easily to that group, but they were very disciplined. He didn't just he didn't just uh, allow them to run roughshod. They were very much under his control, and um, um, and they had a political agenda of certain rights that they wanted: decent housing, 
decent schools for their kids, you know, um, sanitation, picking up the trash from their streets um, and so forth. Um, but he also realized um, that he needed to broaden his outreach, as you already mentioned, um, to the black community as a whole and not just be uh, uh, this particular group of uh, guys that he recruited. Um, and there he split with uh, his second in command, Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver wanted to start the revolution immediately. And in fact, he did ambush police car um, uh, um, and himself had to, had to leave the country and went into exile in Algeria with Panthers who believed in a revolution this minute, start it now, start shooting up the police, um, and went to join him. But Huey P. Newton did not believe that. He thought that if we were going to have a, a revolution and a, a com and, a, and a communist agenda, um, they would need the support of the entire black community. And so he developed community programs and recruited people into the party. Uh, and the party became more female than male, even, uh, um, uh, to uh, uh, set up community programs uh, amongst them the breakfast for school children program, uh, free breakfast. So the kids were going to school. No one went to school hungry um, so they could learn. Uh, he set up free medical uh, clinics on the weekend and particularly checking for sickle cell anemia. Uh, he set up free legal clinics on the weekend for those who are having problems with uh, the law. Um, uh, he, uh, he, he set up a liberation school a private academy for black children in the ghetto where they would get a, a very good education. Um, um, so he created all these community-based program, but that would take time. He was not for revolution now. Um, and uh, But meanwhile, the police would be confronted uh, in the ghetto whenever they misbehaved, which was often uh, and um, uh, and meanwhile, of course, in the country, every time um, the police killed, you almost always the police forces were almost always pretty much all white in major cities. Whenever they killed uh, some guy in the ghetto for some reason, sometimes for no reason, and oftentimes unarmed, um, <clears throat> there would be riots. And he would be and said, "No, we have to control these riots. We have to, we have to discipline the entire black community. The state of riots just deteriorate into looting, and that gives everybody, you know, bad name. But we want to make it a revolutionary force, and um, if need be, we'll have to overthrow this government and secede." Um, <clears throat> and um, so, but he was very patient and very, very smart. Um, and uh, Panther chapters sprung up all over the country, but all under, supposedly under his control. But the New York chapter and the Los Angeles chapters were loyal to El Eldridge Cleaver, not to him. So there was a split in the party. Um, so what did they accomplish? Well, there was sporadic uh, uh, killings on both sides. Policemen killing Panthers who were resisting arrest. Uh, or according to the police, the resisting arrest, Panthers ambushing police cars, squad cars, 
uh, which which they did. Um, and then there would be a, a series of show trials in which the Panthers demonstrated outside, you know, free Huey, because he was accused of killing a police officer. And very unclear circumstances whether he did or he did or not or what how that happened. Um, he had actually he had uh, three trials, <laughs> and finally they gave up on because a black even if one black was on the jury they could not get a conviction. <laughs> Nobody would convict him, um, and so um, and so that went on. So um, <clears throat> that drew the attention of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, of course, uh, because they were preaching revolution. And uh, if you see the movie, uh, uh, what is it called? Judas and the Black Messiah that recently came out it's a couple of years right. ago. They talk, they, they show a Fred Hampton in California who was in uh, Chicago, who was the head of a chapter in Chicago, a very young man. He was only 21 years old. Got killed, but yeah. He got killed, but he was preaching revolution, kill cops, you know, and so forth and so on. <laughs> and then he was killed. Pretty much an FBI assassination plot. Pretty much, pretty obviously that. And Hoover felt that the Panthers were the number one security problem in the United States, bigger even than the Communist Party. <laughs> and so he organized a whole program to infiltrate them, expose them, um, and get them to fight with each other which was very easy to do because Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton were hated each other eventually. And with them, eventually Panthers were killing each other. <laughs> um, uh, so that drew his attention. But with that movie is, uh, I found that movie very troubling because they make J. Edgar Hoover doing what he did because he was a racist, purely out of racism. Whereas the Panthers were, Avowedly a revolutionary and communist party, um, and he could not, you know, uh, intent on um, uh, confront, you know, fighting the government or the agents of the government, like 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 the police, and he had to address them. Let me let me let me let me interrupt you there for a second because um, I want to challenge that you said um, uh, that he that he did have to uh, address them because they were maybe in, in your in your parlance anti-government etc i was a condition of black people uh in that time uh, uh racially motivated in the way they were treated by the government in other words were they considered were they given substandard resources yes okay were were they given substandard education substandard just about everything Yes. Uh, and uh, did they make any types of attempts to change that? Meaning, were there people within the community trying to change that peacefully throughout time? Yes, but they were, didn't succeed. Right. And the next question is, uh, in, in, our, in the genesis of our country, isn't it true that when, the, uh, when the, our original founding fathers, the revolutionaries, didn't get the outcomes that they wanted from the, the, the throne, that they picked up arms to fight what was actually what they considered putting them down? Yes. So uh, that, was, that was exactly their ideology. And, exactly. So, and, so my question is for those who, and again, I'm a peaceful guy, a very peaceful guy, but I mean, I am also uh, circumspect in the way I come to conclusions. And I don't know if we should come to the conclusion that 
Edgar Hoover had, uh, you know, had this right to protect the state from those who were just trying to acquire rights. Right. I mean, that's what that's what was the genesis of the Black Panther. Right. Yes. Well, uh, he had to he had to protect the government from an insurrection, an insurrectionary force. And uh, so he regarded the Panthers as going too far. Um, the Panthers on their side felt that this is what was necessary to do. So now as the author of this book, uh, Dr. Tom, as the, I mean, <laughs> sorry, Dr. Sam, I'm sorry. As the author, I mean, Dr. Pam, uh, what, what's wrong with my mind today? Uh, as, the, as the author of this book, right? Um, I imagine uh, even though it's a novel, I would love to hear your thoughts as far as um, the, you, you know, because our country has a tendency to put people in different corners and demonize some and not demonize the other. We can take a look at how Brett Forbes stole a million dollars or more, and mm-hmm. it's no big deal. But we get some black kid in a 7-Eleven who steals a candy bar and it's the end of the world. He gets shot. Guy named Michael Brown gets shot. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have we, we have perspective. And earlier you spoke about um People talk about appropriation. I don't, I, 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 uh, this is going to sound funny. I don't have a problem with appropriation. I think everybody appropriates everybody. I, I have a problem with the financial exploitation of appropriation. In other words, that you can, uh, that you can write a black book. I have no problem about that. Or book about black folks. I write a book about white folks. I have no problem about that uh, at all. The, the thing about it is we should have equal access to do those things and equal access to profit from those things. Right. And, uh, and from what I've seen from what you're writing about, you're putting out your perspective, which you have the freedom to do in this country. So going back to where we left off, as far as the, the section as Edgar Hoover thought he had to do something about the black Panthers, that's where you were. Right. Okay. Well, I'm so, he went too far. He went way too far. And he, um, um, but it was a very tense time. It was a very difficult time. And there was a lot of violence going on back and forth. Um, so that was one issue. Um, uh, but the Panthers, um, they were scary. And that's, in fact, I think that was the best thing about them. They scared the hell out of whites, <laughs> and they still do. <laughs> Even the, the recent uh, uh, Black Lives Matter movement was scary to whites. Um, oh, uh, the, no, no, no. The black it was scary to some whites uh, yes, because okay. the movement had a lot of whites in it. The black the Black Lives Matter movement has a lot of white people in it. Absolutely right. Okay, so but it did scare. A lot of people, and you, the president included, um, the Republicans by and large, um, at least the ones that speak publicly. Um, so, but that's that was what was needed. Really, was to scale the white community, and they accomplished something which was not what they set out to accomplish, but it was a wonderful accomplishment, which was they forced urban police departments to hire minorities to hire blacks. And that that's the biggest difference between now and then. Um, for example, in New York, well, New York City, the police force is majority minority. 
<laughs> there are white cops, but they are not in the majority. Uh, um, and that's true, in, I think, pretty much in every city across the country now. And that that's also that also is true for um, uh, prosecutors and judges. Um, and it was because the Panthers were a scary bunch that white people made these changes um, to deal with them. Um, so, um, so that I, I think that's so important. You know what they did accomplish. Um, although there's still room for police reform, obviously, and the Black, Black Lives Matter pro, uh, protest movement, which I support, you know, uh, demonstrated that. Um, so there is that. But my book, you know, traces the Panthers as they go into demise because, number one, they're fighting each other. That's all that's you're right about that, Dr. Tom, uh, Dr. Pam. It is always a problem when you start fighting among each other, whether it is fighting among each other in, in, in a group like the Panthers or fighting each other as Americans. You allow a few to take over. But continue, please. Yes. Well, so. Um, so they were fighting each other and then they were overtaken and I would say pretty much destroyed by cocaine. They. they one by one, um, they became cocaine addicts. They were dying from it or hospitalized from it or whatever. But it just swept through their ranks, at least in Oakland and, you know, the more militant aspects of the party. Um, that, that wouldn't be true necessarily across the country. Um, but the Oakland chapter was, you know, very militant chapter and the leading chapter. And the leaders were all addicted to cocaine, Huey P. Newton included. Um, and that destroyed them. Another issue which hurt them a lot was uh, the sexism in the party. Uh, the women members um, were often given just very menial tasks to do and expected to sleep uh, with the brothers, which they willingly did in many cases, but uh, but it was expected. It was expected, and that was a little that was demeaning and um um of course, of course, doctor, that is also uh prevalent in our society at large. Women continue to be the, the and even though they may not say it explicitly, a lot of boardrooms that is how a lot of women uh, feel things that they have to do to to get ahead yes well but the but the women were very much uh Taken with the romance of the Panthers, right. the revolution became a romantic idea. It became, you know, without ever facing what, what that really entailed. Um, but uh, they loved the, the concept that they were going to rise up and, uh, uh, you know, smash sure. all the institutions that were oppressing them right. um, without recognizing that that would, they would lose and they would, their communities would be destroyed. And many uh, people would be killed, and it would be somewhat similar to the Algerian War, where where there was no quarter given between two two communities, the French and the Muslim, the Arabs. There, Doctor um, Pam, we're we're running up on time, so let me ask you to do this for me. Uh, give me uh, a tell me what uh, do you expect for the person who reads your book, this particular book, When Black Panthers Prowled America, what do you want to, what's, what do you want people to get out of that book uh, with regards to the Black Panthers? What message do you want to send? Um, that the Panthers were uh, a catalyst 
And as a catalyst, they made a major contribution to America. Um, but they also had their problems and uh, um, overreached in many ways. Um, and um, eventually uh, uh, brought themselves down, destroyed themselves. Um, but with a lot of help from the FBI, I have to, I have to say. And, um, um, but to appreciate what they did, but also to realize that uh, um, you can't lionize them, you can't glorify them, that they were really preaching violence um, and trying to uh, uh, threatening civil war and, uh, um, and uh, in many cases uh, doing uh, unbelievable things uh, uh, along, along those lines. And what would you have liked me to ask you, ask you that I didn't? Um, I think you, I think you were wonderful. <laughs> I think you answered all the right questions. Well, and, look, I, and I, I agree with your attitude overall. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. Now, I, I just want to uh, put, uh, and first of all, I like your closing, but I want to put one corollary onto that because I think Americans need to more Americans. Uh, need to see it through the eyes of those who have been aggrieved for centuries. Violence has been, since the inception of this country, applied to the other. And to think that the violence from the other is any more despicable than the violence inflicted on them is the problem that I always have. I am a passive, I'm a pacifist in that I don't believe in violence. I always believe conversation can solve problems, but by the same, same token, I will not ever just simply tell the person who is fighting back that somehow their violence is more despicable than the violence that was perpetrated upon them. That is the thing. I think if Americans were more empathetic in seeing these things, we wouldn't have violence on any side. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and but but they had to they had to, the white community needed a jolt. Yes, they did. They needed, they needed to be scared. Yes, they, they did. To see the, the consequences of what was going on in in the ghettos of Oakland and the ghettos everywhere else. And Doctor, sorry, go ahead. No, just going to say, Doctor, Doctor uh, Pam, it's been my pleasure speaking to you, and I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, I enjoyed the conversation too. Politics done right depends on you to keep doing what we do. What do we do? We make sure to keep number one, the internet seeded with blogs and information to counter the right and to present what progressives represent for the benefit of us all to everybody so that it's not misread, misled by any other entity. We make sure and populate that internet with blogs, with videos, with all these other things to make sure that we are informed and to counter everything that you normally hear that, that are lying at the right. We also make sure to create articles in, in magazines, articles in newspapers, all around the country to ensure again that our message gets out there last but not least we also write books as you see it class warfare the only 
but resort to right-wing doom, how to make America utopia, or two of the many books that I've written on these issues. So please support us in one of many ways. Numero uno, you can support us at PayPal, either one time or monthly. Go to politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal. You can support us on Patreon. That is politicsdoneright.com slash Patreon. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us by becoming a part of our YouTube channel, going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, or you can support us in many other forms that you can find at politicsdoneright.com slash support. Be sure to visit our store, politicsdoneright.com slash store, and get our books at politicsdoneright.com slash books. Eight of the top 10 states with the highest murder rates, all are Republican states. How do Democrats not know that? In fact, it's really nine out of 10. Georgia went for Biden, but it's really a Republican state, or at least a red state. Eight out of 10. And we're losing that message? Crime is higher, as well as taxes here for the average uh, citizen in Texas. It's higher crime, higher violent crime and poverty crimes than in the state of California. 67% higher gun death rate in Texas. Why don't we push back? Why are we? Why don't? Why? Why? Why don't we? I don't know. In terms of my current point of view, I'm optimistic about our ability to turn this around if we go on the offense. That's why I'm doing the billboards. That's why I'm doing these ads. That's why I'm doing these TV commercials in other states. Take it to them and take it to that damn social media network, whatever that thing's called. There's a huge amount of political and therefore economic profit to be made by convincing white voters that anything that is good for other Americans, even and including them, is somehow a threat, right? The idea, the zero-sum idea that we can't all progress together, that in fact progress for people of color must be a threat to white people. So take the student loans, for example. Who benefits from a an historic up to $20,000 in student loan debt being, well, $20 million borrowers, the vast majority of whom are working and middle class people, the majority of whom are white. The bottom line here is that these policies, the idea of having voting rights in the country where politicians don't pick their voters, but voters pick their politicians, the idea of having affordable college, it's good for everyone. And yet conservatives want to break a working class multiracial coalition to make white voters side with their color instead of their class. Here is a message. I hope a definitive message. To all those who fall for the crap that many of your Republican leaders and others come up with, conspiracy theories, the big steal, the big the, the election is a fraud, all of that. You know who knows the truth? All those Republican politicians that are telling you the lies and they know the truth. And guess what happens behind closed doors? They laugh at you for believing the crap. They laugh at you and they say, oh, you know, it's not real, but come on, it'll pass. How do you feel? Being used like that, those of you who believe the lie, those of you who believe that, oh, if my politician loses, it's because of some sort of a fraud, even as they know the truth and they're speaking behind your backs of what the truth is. I want you to listen to this piece from La Senora Stephanie Rule because she hit the nail on the head with this segment. Very important. The big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump. We hear this all the time from GOP lawmakers, candidates, and all sorts of members of the right-wing media all the time. 
But on a recent podcast, Texas Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw revealed that behind closed doors in the days before January 6th, some Republicans admitted to him the election was not stolen. He went on to say they admitted to making false promises to their supporters. Listen to this. They're like, yeah, we know that. But we just, you know, people just need their last, they're like their last hurrah. Like they just need to feel like we fought one last time. Trust me, it'll be fine. And I was like, no, it won't. That's not what people believe. And that's not what you're telling them. Maybe you're smart enough to know that. But like, so we have a lot of people in the political world that are just willing to say things they know aren't true. They know aren't true. And it's it's a huge manipulation. For fact's sake, that is a huge manipulation, one with dangerous consequences. Our second fact check tonight has to do with critical race theory and the Republican outcry that is being forced on kids in schools. Well, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin even set up a tip line to help root this problem out. Well, it turns out the tip line didn't get very many tips. And as USA Today reports, most of the calls they did get were for other reasons, including complaints about special education, violations, praising for teachers, and concerns about academic rigor and options. The tip line was, no surprise, quietly shut down back in September. Must not have been as big of an issue as the governor had previously claimed. Our final and perhaps most outrageous and disgusting fiction is actually being spread by some Republican candidates. It's about litter boxes in schools. You know what? We're going to let this guy at a Trump rally explain more. Kids are coming in dressed up as cats with collars and leashes on and ears and supposed to have litter boxes in the restrooms. I cannot believe I have to say this, but obviously there are absolutely no litter boxes for students in schools. This specific story caught fire after notorious podcaster Joe Rogan repeated similar false claims on his wildly popular show. But after some backlash, Rogan says he did some more digging and he came to this conclusion. It doesn't seem that there's any proof that they put a litter box in there. No proof. He pushed the lie. Hopefully that settles that. And now we do not ever have to talk about litter boxes in school ever again. And be sure to tell your friends, the truth matters, but only if you hear it. So listen up. So let me ask you, are you going to continue? Those of you who believe in the steel, those of you who think for some reason that uh, you, you have to keep this fight up because they're taking away your rights for some reason. Ask yourself, first of all, why are you so, I don't want to say gullible, but why are you so interested in accepting that which was debunked quite a while back? Please tell me, why is it that, why do you feel the need to believe something that in your gut you should know is false? It may just be you're trying to find an excuse. Think about it. Harvard University uh, Director of Poland, John De La Volpe, he comes out and he, t- he told us before the election that the difference was going to be the vote of the youth, the youth vote, Gen Z and millennials, you know, and the people that, ah, yeah, those people never vote, etc. Well, you know, they came out 
and they voted overwhelmingly for progressives and Democrats. But more, more than that, they came out in higher than normal volume. So far, it seems like 27% of them showed up. It seemed like it's got to be more when we get all the tallies in. But, you know, he claimed, he came and he said, you know, 40% of these guys are going to vote. Even if it stays at 27%, even if it stays at 27%, the mere fact that they're voting at, fi- at, at a lot of times 50-point margins, right, proves the point that he's been saying for a while. The youth vote is the future, but it's more than the youth vote is the future because the older folks that continue to vote, uh, not overwhelmingly, but substantially for Republicans, well, I tell you what, why don't you just listen to what he has to say? John Della Volpe, we'll start with you. In terms of the youth voter turnout, there's so many different ways to be surprised here because some of the focus groups that we saw, a lot of young people didn't even know there were midterms, and yet a lot did. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely right. Let me break it down as simply as I possibly can, Mika. Um, we just look at, first of all, the majority, the close to 60 percent of voters in this country who are over the age of 45. By a margin of 10 points, they voted Republican in House races across the country and in most Senate races as well. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Democrats went in with a minus 10 advantage. It put a tremendous amount of pressure on young people to do two things, A, to show up, and B, to support Democrats. Young people under 45 supported Democrats by 13 points. Young people under 30 supported Democrats by 28 it's a, this would have been a red wave election if not for millions and millions of young millennials and Gen Zers. So, uh, John, let's take a case in your larger point. In Arizona, just looking at the current numbers, Mark Kelly among voters 18 to 29 is plus 56. Voters 30 to 44, he's plus 19. Once you get past 44, Masters win. So this is a story of the young vote. There's no question about it here. And I guess the question... A larger question going forward is what are the implications for sort of the shifting vote here, which is to say young people, by and large, going for Democrats, voters, just put it bluntly, who are going to be around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. W- Willie, this is not a surprise. We've been talking about this on your show for years now. This is the third election in a row where Democrats have relied on the youth vote to make the difference. In 18 and 20 and in 22, it's the same thing. Republicans now are a small, melting iceberg. Republicans lost white, non-college voters under 30. That's the heart Hmm. and soul of the Republican Party right now. They lost the new generation already with this demographic. Folks, I mean, so as it turns out, it's a melting iceberg, and this is a melting iceberg that isn't going to refreeze. So as it turns out, as we move forward, it's not a demographic change. It's an American change, folks, and we are headed there, and we are headed there quickly. I simply could not believe this one. I couldn't believe that a host on a national cable network would say this about women and how to get them to start voting Republican. I swear, you won't believe it. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. Juanita, Republicans had another idea for how they can expand their base. I want to share what one Fox News News host is suggesting. Oh, God. 
<laughs> Single women are breaking for Democrats by 30 points. And this makes sense when you think about how Democrat policies are designed to keep women single. But once women get married, they vote Republican. Married women, married men go for Republicans by double digits. But single women and voters under 40 have been captured by Democrats. So we need these ladies to get married. And it's time to fall in love and just settle down. Guys, go put a ring on it. Just put a ring on it. I'm pretty sure you cannot make up this stupidity. (laughs) You cannot make this up, Steph. And it's not it's not just chauvinistic. It's just plain ignorant. Like you think that's the pitch that's going to get young, independent women on your side. Like and, and what kills me is that Republicans are so anti woman. His response is get a man in your life to control them. That's the rebuttal here. That's the response here. It's just disgusting. I, I, I expect nothing better from those folks over at that other network. And, and honestly, it just reaffirms how much they are anti-women, how much they hate women. And that fear of women who are independent, that fear of young people, that's only going to continue to grow because you're not getting anybody on your side with this argument. So shout out to the independent women. Shout out to the young people who are rejecting this disgusting argument from the right. You, you, you have to ask yourself, don't these guys read? Don't these guys talk to independent women? Don't these guys talk to women in a manner that, let's say, they can understand? How dare one says, oh, uh, single women, the only the way to get them to vote Democratic is put not, not try to not try to engage her, but put a ring on it. So the woman is not only now not a woman, it's a thing that you command. It's a it. I mean, when I saw this tonight, I couldn't help but cringe. But here's the funny part about it, guys. You want to know why Michigan is now all blue? Every elective office is as well as the state house and the state Senate. You want to know why the same applies to Minnesota? You want to know why all these other uh, races that were thought to be lost are coming back in such a manner that if the Republicans get a majority of four extra votes in the four more votes in the um, house. That's about all they can get when it's all over. This is the reason why you want to know why women don't vote for Republicans. In other words, most single women and a hell of a lot of married women. It's because that is a troglodytic mentality. We're talking about. It's two. 2022. It's hard to believe that we still have people this way. But you know what, folks? It's our fault. We need to vote and vote appropriately. We need to stop being just single issue voters that they that they have us nebulously forget about all the other things that they're doing. 
We need to look at the totality. We need to look at their chauvinism. We need to look at their sexism. We need to look at their misogyny. We need to look at their racism. We need to look at all the isms. It's not that we progressives don't have our isms or even partake of some of those isms, but at least we know it. And at least we're trying to do something about it. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Random. Egberto Will is your host. Today, we are honored to have Linda Nuno. Linda is uh, the state is running for state, not state, Congressional District 10 in uh, in the Austin College Station. It's a huge area. Linda, welcome to Politics and Red. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I beg you to have a little bit of patience. I have an accent, so you have to be very, very, very careful with this. It's going to be tricky, but it's going to be fun. I promise you that if anything, it's going to be inspiring. Because if I can do it with this accent, with these demographics, with this uh, you know, color, with this gender, I bet that you have a chance and it's time for you to consider to put your name on the ballot, even if you agree or disagree with my, my agenda. Well, look, Linda, tell me a little bit about you. How? Uh, t- tell me a little bit about your history. Why are you representing 10? Well, my, my, my story actually be- began when I was three years old. I was kidnapped uh, at three years old. I was, uh, I'm a former uh, missing uh, FBI child. Uh, I, I, I was, I landed in Mexico. I was placed in an orphanage for uh, a couple of years. Uh, we have you know, issues with CPS, kidnapping kids uh, without the proper uh, guidelines, Mm -hmm. should I say. Uh, We have uh, hired people, uh, social workers that are not qualified to to render some of the services. And we have a lot of corruption. We have like guardians on item, uh, lying on the stand, court reporters who actually do not type what is happening, at, uh, you know, in some of these courts and it's just corruption all over. Right. And I'm very familiar with it. So we had, uh, I, I'm a survivor, right? I know what happens behind these walls. I know that rapes are real. I know the beatings are real. I know the cold showers are real. And we had, unfortunately, 122 kids that died last year, uh, well, since 2019, if I'm correct, 122 kids that died behind those walls. So uh, that could happen to anybody. That could happen to you. That could happen to me. It only takes uh, a malicious person, a neighbor, an, an ex, uh, a co-worker, any sociopath that wants to mess with your life can just place a call to Child Protective Services, uh, make a bunch of crap. Forgive my language. I'm very fluent in French. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And unfortunately, it has become a business. Right. The lawyers and uh, stopped working in the best interest of the child a long time ago. Judges are working just for the next election and how to get endorsements and how to get uh, donations, you know, to get elected. And this has become a mafia. And there's no other way to call it but what it is, which is child trafficking uh, in the worst way possible. Now we're talking about 22 million parents who have gone through family court and have been derailed by the system. And and we're talking like nationwide, right? And we have uh, so much, uh, you know, parents who have suffered the trauma of parental alienation 
uh, are committing like suicide at, at an imaginable rate. I mean, it's in every 32 seconds you have an alienated uh, parent committing suicide or trying to threat, you know, the other spouse. So I think that mental health care is basic. Uh, I think that it's important uh, to prevent versus correct. And uh, the best way is to neutralize the damage that has been already done to our society uh, by putting something as simple as just cameras, you know, on the courtrooms. Uh, judges are working outside the guidelines of the law. Uh, they are abusing that discretion in just horrendous ways. Uh, they should be acting as elected officials, not despotic monarchs. And that has to stop, right? Uh, we don't have the need also as well for court reporters anymore. We are not in the 1800s. This is not the 1600s. Uh, we have something like a software that is dragging, right? And a machine is not going to type something that you do not say. So there is not bias. And we have to ensure uh, that evidence is actually what is evidence in the basic you know, definition of it not whatever you can present in court, right? Or you are allowed to present in court. So the, the problems that we face are very complex. They're very diverse. Uh, and now we're paying the consequences of that. And uh, that's one of the things that inspire me to, to run. Uh, I have been a victim of police brutality. I have been uh, a political prisoner. I, I was in the uh, July uh, 4th, uh, during the summer of 2020, protesting against ICE for the separation of kids at the border. Because the reality is that it doesn't matter if you have papers or not. The reality is that the government is still, uh, you know, destroying the family unit and by whatever means necessary, right? And uh, when you put money on the table, and I have to send uh, from Congress, you know, twenty a check of twenty thousand dollars per child to the state in order to support them, which is bullshit because those funds never get to those kids. Uh, then we have a problem. We have a problem, uh, and it has opened the window to despicable tragedies out there. Now, tell me a little bit about your district. Um, uh, how, what's the demographic of your district? Uh, how many, uh, is it a, it is a, is it a mostly Republican district? Where, it, where is it? It's completely Republican. I mean, the only little pockets of, of, uh, more diverse kind of thinking, more progressive thinking are, uh, the cities, right? Or, or, uh, towns that we have like a strong, well-known uh, universities, mm-hmm. like in College Station, you know, with Texas A&M. I went to Texas A&M. I studied child development there. Uh, Travis is extremely uh, diverse, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, we do have some progressive thinking. It's still uh, like a, a battle over here. But we're doing it. We're doing it, and we need you to to get involved. Uh, and you may not live in Texas. This is not the message. You may not be one of my constituents, but I need you to go vote. And once you cast your ballot, 
I need to start thinking and devise a strategy to put your name on the ballot on the next cycle. Uh, the elected officials are not doing anything. Uh, at least that has been my, my personal experience. Uh, I have heard thousands of cases. I have helped hundreds of people. And, uh, and things are not changing because we're not no. changing legislation. Now, you decided to run in a district that would be difficult. So what I imagine as well is you wanted to send a message. Every single district must have somebody to vote for because you never know. I think you're too smart for your own good. You know that. Yeah, well, I think you're the very first one who catch on with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, you you never you never know what's what's going to happen. Now, here's an interesting thing. In in as much as your district is very um uh very Republican, it turns out that there's some kind of a cheating that seemed to have occurred. In that, I think there were uh there are some people being mailed votes uh. They're, they're mailing ballots that had them voting in, in precincts that they're not supposed to be given the redistricting, correct? That's correct. You see, this is the, the thing. Just like you, uh, my platform is bigger than my district, right? Right. So when I went viral uh, during the unlawful uh, arrest uh, and the sexual assault uh, that I, you know, that I was a victim of, I went viral, right? And I had like 48 million viewers on Facebook and I had another obscene number on Twitter and every, everywhere we're, we're talking about that. Now, the problem with that is that uh, I, I think they feel threatened because I, I made a petition uh, on change.org with, uh, with the title, I demand a female officer. And it got like 347,000 signatures, right? So that's, that's a lot. And when I saw that number and when I saw real people actually being empathetic and caring about my child, I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity. This is, it comes with responsibility. It comes with a responsibility to do something about it. So I think they, 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 they got threatened a little bit just because of the, the message of mm -hmm. what I represent, right? And although my district may be Republican, the, the system has failed both ways. I mean, a cop is not going to stop and ask you if you're a Republican or a Democrat and then shoot you. Uh, the, the, the family court system is not going to ask you if, if you voted one way or another. No. So we all have been failed by the system in one way, at one degree uh, or another. And, and it's time to do something about it. It's just time to clean, clean both sides, the establishment per se. Uh, both establishments are rotten. Uh, don't let them tell you otherwise. Don't let them use your. That's your the activist in you coming out. That's the progressive activist in you coming out. That's <laughs> what I, in other words, let's get the message out. So let me ask you, uh, Miss Linda Nuno, why don't you give me a closing statement that you want everyone to hear with respect to our body politic? You don't need to tell me, you don't need me to tell you that democracy is a stake. This, is, this may not be 1776, but you have to fight for your country. People younger than you were willing to die for the land that you're stepping on, sacred land. Countless of sacrifices has been made every single day since then. The least that you can do 
is to get up on your ass and go to vote. Linda Nuno for Congress, Texas 10. Folks, check her out. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. A pleasure as always. Thank you. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.